Welcome to the 501 Companion Podcast, an educational and news podcast slash vodcast for 501c3 charitable organizations that want to create better content, optimize their technology, and improve their marketing to better serve their mission. This is episode number 19, and 19 is special in so many different ways. Our biggest soccer, or as we should call it, football fan, knows that the jersey number 19 was worn by Dwight Yorkie, Santi Carroll, and Leroy Sani. How'd I do, Matt? Were those, were they even close? Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> 19 is the name of Adele's 2008 debut album, named because she was 19 years old at the time, and we were stuck inside for an entire year and a half due to something called COVID-19. Let's get on with the show. Nick, cue the music. I'm joined by my talented co-hosts who bring a wide range of experience to our weekly show. And if you're watching on the video, you know we have guests today as well. But let's just start with our co-hosts. You know who who is who among who. First, meet Matt Balo, our chief digital officer. Matt, tell them who you are and what you do. Hi, everybody. I am Matt Balo. I have been in the marketing industry for over 20 years. I have a master's degree in MBA. I've been on all sides of marketing. My focus has been on digital and technology. I bridge that gap between cutting edge tech and organizational strategies to really make things happen. Sounds great. Hey, Nick, how about you? Nick Rufa, you're our chief information officer. Tell them who you are and what you do. I am Nick Rufer. I'm your company's computer guy. I enjoy teaching, uh, helping people, uh, lately doing it by uh, building websites that share information, uh, such as the 501c3lookup.org site that this podcast is on. So that's it. Nick, the technology guy. Yeah, you make the technology run, Nick. And I'm Buddy Scalera. I'm your chief content officer. My focus is on content strategy and intelligent content. We're here to provide your organization with the information and inspiration to take your charitable mission to the next level. So let's get on with the show. You know, we have a guest here today, and uh, I hope you don't blush too much as I read your bio. Uh, We have Carla Johnson here with us today. And Carla is a world-renowned storyteller and entertaining speaker, and I can attest to that because I have seen her speak, and a prolific author. I even have one of her original earlier books. She's lived, worked, and studied in five continents, partnered with top brands and conferences to train thousands of people how to rethink the work that they do and the impact that they can have. Her visionary expertise has inspired and equipped leaders at all levels to embrace change, welcome new ideas, and transform their business. Carla, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you, buddy. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Nick, for having me here today. Thanks for and Carla, you know, it's not just that you are um, a, a thought leader in innovation. You quite literally have written the book, <laughs> Rethink Innovation. Uh, the, the book is called Rethink Innovation, How the World's Most Prolific Innovators Come Up With Great Ideas That Turn Into Extraordinary Outcomes. I love the title. Uh, I've been able to read some of the book. Can you just tell our listening audience who, of course, uh, most likely work in the charitable space, a little bit about Rethink Innovation. Absolutely. One of the things that I've learned along the way, and I've worked with a lot of 501 cs nonprofit organizations, is that you don't need to have huge budgets, huge teams, 
huge, anything other than aspirations to be really, really innovative. And a lot of times people think that, you know, we don't have that major Steve Jobs kind of thinker in our organization, but really innovation is everybody's business. And that was the big idea behind why I wrote the book. And I think, buddy, just the fact that you read the subtitle means that you've read a, a fair amount of the book because I think it's uh, it's its own chapter in itself. But I wanted people to understand that great ideas don't have to be complicated. They don't have to be time consuming. They don't have to be expensive. Everybody can learn how to become an innovator if they learn the process that the most innovative thinkers use to consistently come up with those great ideas that have extraordinary outcomes. So Carla, you know, we're going to ask you to touch on a couple of things. I'm so excited, but we'll, we'll just tell people what they're going to be listening for. You have a five point process or a five step process rather. Um, you have reasons why you need to rethink and you have also couched it in examples and not everything's a success story. So first, uh, can you just tell our listeners why it's important now more than ever to rethink innovation um, from your perspective, having worked in this field and done this study? Well, I think especially now with COVID and coming out of COVID and you had a, a great connection with 19 with all of the examples that you had, buddy, you know, it's being able to understand the world around us and how we can use the work that we do as, as nonprofits or as 501c3s and say, what is it that really connects with people in this moment in time? And how do we use that as inspiration to build a stronger and deeper relationship with our audience, with our, with our members, whoever? that might be. And I think now when people are looking at how do we make sure that we continue our fundraising, that we bring money in the door, that we um, really engage with our audience and make sure that, that we as a 501c3 is delivering the value that we are organized to deliver, that we're using examples and we're delivering experiences that are truly inspirational. And a lot of times what happens, I think, especially during times of chaos, is that people retract and they go with the safe, the safe thing. You know, what did we do before? What do we know that works? But a lot of times that doesn't get the attention and there are other organizations out there trying to get that attention. And so if you can look at what is um, any brand, any person, any experience that inspires people and understand the essence behind what it is that makes it work and then transplant that into the work that you do, that's really a huge opportunity that 501c3s have that I don't think that they recognize. That is yeah. amazing. Matt, I see you nodding there. Did you uh, did you want to jump in and uh, start guiding some questions as well? Sure. I mean, questions, statements, uh, build on it. Absolutely. I mean, all of it. Like, I, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, everything you were saying right there. It's, uh, I think, one of the things that separates out the 501c3s is their mission, right? And so how solidly rooted they are. And, you know, early on in the book, you do focus on the objectives, right? And and so when you work on the for-profit side and you work on the brand side, a lot of times you, I, I ran, by the way, I ran an innovation team for about five years and, and there's so much work that goes in upfront to set the problem. Right. To figure out the research and, you know, before you're even starting to get to, to just figure out the problem and approach the problem and get down, distill it down. I think one of the advantages that 501c3s have is they are mission focused. And so I think that really helps them work and understand their audiences and understand that objective to really, I think this book would work very well for them because they 
they're starting from that that spot already. It's almost a natural transition right into this process. You know, I, I completely agree, Matt. One of the things that I talk about with being able to implement innovation at the organizational level is first, make sure that you have articulated your purpose. And that right there is something that 501c3s do very, very well right. because it, it takes that purpose, that mission-driven part to yeah. focus everybody and the work that you're doing and making sure everybody is pointed in that same direction. And that right there is one of the first things that allows yep. for innovative thinking, yeah. You know, Carla, usually um, innovation is associated with creative people. And yet, you know, you were able to demonstrate three or five steps that um, it's discipline and it is uh, it's process. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, because I know that uh, uh, some of our listeners may not have seen the book yet. Can you just talk a little bit about how you've uh, turned this into a succinct, understandable approach? Yeah, absolutely. And I have a five-step process that I use called the perpetual innovation process. But before I kick people off with that part of the process, I have them establish a specific objective that they're looking to address with the ideas that they want to come up with. And just like Matt was talking about how a mission of a 501c3 is, is something that everybody can work toward and helps focus everybody, so does an objective statement and being very clear about what kind of ideas you're needing to solve what kind of problem problems under or take advantage of certain opportunities under what kind of constraints. And I always throw in constraints later in the mix, because if you start out with those constraints, it, yep, <laughs> I see Matt giving me the thumbs up, you know, that it, it discounts some great opportunities for ideas before you even get started. So I have people start out with coming up with the objective and the objective statement is simply, we need new ideas too. What is it that you want to accomplish? Do you want to increase retention? Do you want to increase audience size? You know, be specific about what it is you want to do. The next part of the objective statement is so we can. What's the outcome that you want to happen because of the ideas you want to generate? And this is generally something that is measurable. And then under these constraints. So a lot of constraints are time and budget. It doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be something that addresses, um, like I did a workshop last week with a group, and one of their constraints was, you know, inside a community that's resistant to change. So that's definitely a restraint, you know, a constraint. And so I have people come up with this objective statement, and then I have them set it aside, and we'll pull it off the shelf later as we go through the process. So the five-step process starts out with first observing the world around you. And it was interesting, as I went through the research for the book, the most innovative people in the world, it doesn't matter what size of company, what industry, where in the world they are, they're highly observant and they really pay attention to the world around them. And you think about how much we do on our on our phones every day. I mean, here's my phone right here. It's hardly ever out of arm's reach. And it narrows our focus and we, we miss opportunities to be inspired because we're not being mindful and aware of the world around us. So that's the first step is to be more observant about what goes on around us and, and look at what inspires us, what brands, what people, what kind of experience. And then the next thing, 
And the second step is to distill all of these different observations into patterns. And believe it or not, this is something that your brain does very naturally. It's just how it's wired. So if we go back to when all of us lived on the savanna in the you know early days of humankind, one of the things that our brain was very, very natural at is observing the world around us and then looking for patterns because patterns determined whether or not we were safe or there was danger in, in our in our immediate environment. You know, does were, were the grasses on the savanna very calm? Were the animals, you know, leisurely eating, or did a flock of birds fly all of a sudden and animals dart? So it's those kind of patterns that our brain knows instinctively to determine whether or not we're safe or not. So it's just something that has evolved over time that our brain still naturally looks for those patterns if we give it space and time to find them. Now, the third step is what I call relate. And this step between transitioning between the theoretical, what we observe, the patterns that we find, and now being able to relate it into the work that we do can be the hardest step for people because it's moving from theoretical into the real world of the ideas that we need to generate. But this is the key step that really determines whether or not an idea is truly inspired, truly original, and truly relatable. Because I know that you you all have seen this where a brand does something truly amazing and then somebody else essentially just tries to copy and paste it into their world and it's it fails miserably. I mean, I don't know where Kraft got the idea for the mac and cheese flavored ice cream, but I'm pretty sure that they're trying to copy and paste something from someplace else. You know, so we look at that, like how... How inspired is the ideas that come out of the fourth step, which is generate, how inspired are they? Are they essentially the same that you've always done in just a little tweak? Or are they genuinely inspired because you've observed the world around you, you recognize those patterns, you understand how to relate those patterns into the work that you do? So that's the fourth step. And the fifth step is how do you pitch those ideas? Because a bad pitch can kill the best of ideas. And we also have to look at putting that pitch, the story of the idea that you have and the journey that you use to come up with it into the context, coming back to your objective statement of what it means to your organization. What is it you're trying to accomplish? What's the outcomes that you expect? And what are the constraints that you know these ideas have to live within? You know, that's really an important ecosystem in which people need to start to think about innovation. So, Carla, I I can't help but go back to the pattern uh, element that you talked about. Um, What pattern were you observing that led you to realize that you needed to write this book? Because you said it took you some five years to write this book. And you're no stranger to publishing. This is your 10th book. Right? This is my 10th book. This is your 10th book. So you're no stranger to publishing. Wow. What pattern did you see that made you say, I have to write a book about this? You know, it, it was a couple of things, buddy. And one was that after I would give a workshop or a speech or, you know, talk to somebody about great ideas and how they could come about or give examples of companies that do this, inevitably somebody would come up to me and say, I love all this, but I'm just not an idea person. And it it actually made my heart hurt because all of us, when we were kids, we were the best and biggest idea people there ever was. And there was a, a research study that I came across when I was doing um, research for my book. And it was from the late 1960s. And it was by a man named George Land. And George was a systems engineer. So he was a classically trained left brain engineer. But he started this consultancy 
to teach companies how to become more creative. And one of the directors of NASA came to him and he said, we know we have really creative engineers. We just can't figure out which ones they are. <laughs> and, you know, George said, you know, I can absolutely help you. And he came up with an assessment and he was able to help NASA. But the question he had for himself is, Every five-year-old is amazingly creative. What happens between the age of five and 55 that we lose that? And so what he did is he took that assessment that he had done for NASA and adapted it for five-year-olds. And he gave 1,600 five-year-old kids this assessment. And 98% of them measured at the genius level of creativity. Now, jump ahead five years, and these kids are now 10 years old, and that number drops to 30%. Then you jump ahead to age 15, and it's tanked to 12%, which sounds horrible on its own, but then you compare that to the aggregate that he had of over a million people, a million adults that he surveyed, and out of those, only 2% measured at that genius level of creativity. So it's, it's actually a very natural thing that we're born with as humans, and we do as kids with play and how we learn and how we interact. But I think a lot of it is just how we're told and society expects us to behave and think that really teaches us, teaches that ability out of it. So if anything, the perpetual innovation process is really a reminder and a re-education of something that we do very naturally. We've just forgotten how. Luckily, Buddy never actually grew up. If you see the toys, exactly. Well, yeah, and I was going to say when Matt he hit that two percent, man, he <laughs> he's one of the two percent holding on like crazy. Right. Here I was going to give Nick the credit. <laughs> so right. you know, I think one of the things also that your five steps can do in a charitable organization, as I was thinking about it, was that um, it gives them something to work toward. That is, they have a framework. You follow the framework and it helps you get from A to B to C to D. And I think um, charitable organizations probably have a hard time. You probably have a cult of personality that rolls up to one very, uh, you know, singularly focused leader and everybody defers to that leader and yet everybody wants to think about innovation and we've all we've worked with a lot of 501s Carla and we do find that the pyramid goes very high. But I think what this does is it democratizes a conversation about innovation. And that was what I was really taken with um, in your writing. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your experiences with 501s and how it might be contextualized to rethink innovation in those organizations? Absolutely. And, and I think that idea of this, this pinnacle person being the idea person, sometimes it happens because all the decisions come across their desk or it land in their inbox and everybody expects them to make that decision. You know, their, their whole team is waiting for a direction to take. The board of directors is waiting for them to come up with the ideas. It can be a heavy and often lonely place to be in that position. And I think one of the things that Rethink Innovation can really help with 501c3s is that it takes some of the weight and the burden of consistently coming up with great ideas for whatever the situation is off that one pinnacle person. And again, to your point, buddy, democratizes innovation. And if we look at anything, it's that we know the more diversity we have in the people and the background and the experiences, the more diverse the ideas are. And if you're looking at a 501c3, I'm pretty sure 
sure their audiences are very diverse and you want people coming up with ideas, bringing them to the table, looking at how they can be implemented in just as many diverse ways as you have diversity in your audience. Now, I'll give you a quick example of how you can use an organization like um, the ALS and their ice bucket challenge. And we'll walk through the perpetual innovation process. Now, this is one that I think a lot of organizations think, oh man, if only I could have had the idea. Like, you know, how could I not think of pouring a bucket of ice water over my head? And it's not about getting your organization or your audience or you know, getting people to do that same thing. If we go through the process and we look at the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge and we start to observe what happened, um, they got people to, one, dump a bucket of ice water over their head. They got people to um, share it on social media. They got people to either take the challenge or contribute money so they could get out of it. Um, there was a lot about... Um, you know, uh, people shared it with their network. They shared it with their friends. It was fun. There's a lot of different details about the whole experience that we could observe. Now, if we take those observations and we start to distill them into patterns, there's some patterns that we start to see. It was very easy to share. It was fun. And it built a community, you know, to name to name a couple of them. Mm -hmm. So then if we start to take those patterns that we've distilled and we think about how can we relate that into the work that we do and we start to ask ourselves the question. And this is an important part of the relate step is how we form this question. We ask it in the form of how might we such as in. How might we start to look at a different way to build a community? How might we start to look at ways to make what we do and how we talk about what we do more easily shareable, things like that. And I talk about the way this statement is phrased because many times we ask ourselves or our planning committee, our strategists, how can we or how should we? And those are very nuanced words, because when you ask it in the phrase of how can we do something just like ALS, you know, the ice bucket challenge did, we start to in the back of our mind, you know, the the inner brain starts to go, I don't know if I can, can I? I don't think I can. And all of these interesting nuances and a lot of times negativity and um, dissension comes about before we even get started. And then you look at the phrase. How should we start to connect some of these things to the work that we do? Again, the same kind of, you know, back in the brain voice comes out, whether we realize it or not. I don't know if we should. What if we do something and we look stupid? What if we look ridiculous? And a lot of this affects the creativity of the ideas that we're able to generate. And so that's why there's a little bit of magic in the statement, how might we? Because in a way, it's almost making it pretend you know, how might we do this? You could you could ask it in that phrase. Let's pretend we wanted to build a community in a different way. Then we start to build those questions. Then we answer those questions through the ideas that we generate. So if we're looking at the example of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge and saying there's all these different things that they did, one of the patterns is they built a very strong community, essentially from a lot of people who didn't realize we even existed. Now, how can we start to do that? How might we start to build this kind of community? then that prompts a new way of thinking and a new way of approaching how you come up with ideas. Now, the interesting thing is when you take those ideas and you go to pitch it, all you do is retrace your steps from what is it that you observed 
What were the patterns that you distilled? How did you relate that into the work? How that prompted those, those new ideas? And this is an important aspect about pitching because the more competent the person feels in telling that story of the idea of making the, the pitch, the more confident they come across. And back to your point, buddy, if it's somebody who's not that executive at the pinnacle point of the organization, sometimes people are very hesitant to raise their hand and step forward with a new idea. Carla, I'm going to ask you to look straight up, look straight up. All right, there's Nick. Nick doesn't doesn't use a lot of words. How can a person who is a little bit on the uh, uh, on the Shire scale? I don't know if you've noticed. I do a little bit more of the talking than Nick. I like to pitch. How might a person who is a, a more reserved personality uh, benefit from the process? And then, of course, retracing the steps to step number five. Matt's right in the middle. He he's not neither shy nor bouncing back and forth. Yeah, he's our balance. He's our he's the yin yeah. to our yang. But how might someone who is less gregarious and outgoing benefit from the process, uh, particularly in the pitch stage? Well, and I think that's it. It's that Nick would have had this exact experience. And so it doesn't have to feel like something that's uh, completely prepared, something that feels foreign. All he's actually doing is telling the story of his thought process. And maybe Nick might have a great advantage because he's not trying to overtell the story. He's not one of those verbose pictures. And a benefit of that is that you start to paint the picture in the mind of the audience that you're pitching the idea to, and you let them start to hang the details on or ask the questions. And that starts to build the conversation. And then you refine and you evolve the idea together. And any idea that's developed together is a stronger idea because it's more likely that the person who contributes is more likely to support the idea. Well, and, and you know, we, we all kind of have seen it. Someone like Nick is a great example. You know, he doesn't say a lot in the meeting or in the shows, but he has great ideas. You know, the entire show hangs off an idea of a website he built by himself. And we're here because of that, but he's just not outgoing. I'll speak for you, Nick, from now on. I love it. You're just, <laughs> don't, don't. You're just, you can just like, yes or no. Give, give yeah, the thumbs yes. up or thumbs down, Nick. <laughs> yes, yes. But I think that that's an important aspect of it because, Carla, going back to the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, if, if you had to guess... Who came up with that idea? Was it the tippy top person or someone in the middle or someone just with fresh ideas? What 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 would you have to guess if you were to guess about the ice bucket challenge? You know, I would guess it was somebody in, in the middle to the lower, you know, hierarchy of, of the organization. Because I think one of the things that's so great about it is that it's such a personal experience. And if you think about traditional brainstorming sessions, they're the kind of things that I'm that people like Nick don't like to go because all of us extroverts like dominate everything and people like Nick don't get a word in edgewise. And that's one of the beauties of this process is, is that I talk about don't expect people to come together in that traditional way because there's lots of people who need their own time to to process what they observed, um, understand the patterns that they see. That's very different from traditional extroverts in that brainstorming kind of way. And when you look at only coming up with ideas in that way, you essentially miss 50% of your contributors if that's the only way that you look at how ideas can be developed. 
And going back to the one of the early things you said, Carla, you know, the person who came up with that idea was in touch with a useful way of thinking, not necessarily childlike, but that genius, that genius creativity that hadn't been beaten out of them. Mm-hmm. And they were willing to say, let's do something that no one else has done and no one else is doing, which is what made the ultimate disruption to charitable organizations. We all did it and we were reminded we're supposed to donate money. We all did the ice bucket. We all donated money. And guess what? It worked in part because someone was in touch with that genius, that inner genius, and it hadn't and hadn't left them yet. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and there's um, when I was uh, traveling last week, I picked up a a copy of John Cleese's book, Creativity. My husband was reading it this afternoon and um, he said, he was talking about the part where you need to have time for your brain to have space mm. and to really think these these things through because your brain thinks differently in, in under under deadline. And I hate to always use the word stress because some people perform really well. You know, it's a deadline can be a positive stress for how they perform. But I think we also need to give our time, our, our mind, the time to relax and loosen up and connect all of those dots that we've collected, observed. And, you know, sometimes it's something specific. Sometimes all of a sudden you might go, oh, man, you remember that time I was sitting, standing in line for the baseball game like 17 years ago and I saw whatever it was. Your brain just somehow had randomly connected all of those dots. And the result was this great idea. But unless you had given it time to do the slow thinking, as John Cleese talks, you wouldn't be able to connect those dots. And that's really an important thing to remember. You know, it's funny you say that there was um, when I was a software developer and I'd come up against something that I was having an issue solving uh, one of there were there were two methods I would use to solve it. One is I would just stop and go get a sandwich. And there was a Panera by where I was where I I can't tell you how many problems I saw standing in line at Panera looking at the menu, trying to figure out which panini I wanted and being like, that's it. The second thing is I would just call somebody literally like random right, and just start talking to them about like something about the problem or this or that. And the other thing they were like, I can't help. I don't know what this, I can't help you with this. I'm like, Nope, we got it. We're good. You know, just just the process of like starting to talk about it or, you know, explain it. And before you can hardly get the words out of your mouth, boom, your brain has solved the problem for you. That's right. The brain does good. Th- I actually, uh, funny enough, I solve a the lot of problems in my thing. dreams. I don't know if that's normal or not, but like I literally like continue to work while I sleep and then like wake up with the answer and finish up. It is. And, and in fact, Richard Feynman, if you've ever the, the well-known physicist, um, he used to do that. He used to oh, actually really? sit in a chair and he would hold a glass in his hand and and lean it over the edge of the chair and he'd sit back and he would go to sleep. And it was in that lucid part between being awake and being asleep that his mind would relax him, but he was aware enough that he could solve these problems and to make sure that he didn't go to sleep and lose it all. That's why he held that class. (laughs) When his body relaxed enough to go to sleep, he dropped the glass and that would make a noise and it would wake him up. And then he could go write down all of the things that he had in this, this lucid state where his mind was relaxed and, and working through all of those things that it's easier to do when you, when you aren't trying so hard. That's it. I got to get into physics. 
There you go. <laughs> you don't need to now. I just, I, like I helped you, you don't have to go to that physics class now. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to hold this for a little while. Be there. <laughs> there you go. When you, when you start to doze off, then we'll know that you probably solved your problem. So I'm going to go to the quiet man here in the corner. Nick, you've been listening and absorbing. What are your thoughts on any of the topics around innovation, or do you have any specific? I, I love it all. So thank Carla. you, Carla. I mean, I you know, in everything you were saying, I was thinking of Steve Jobs and how he must have thought about coming up with an iPod, even never mind the iPhone at that point, even just the iPod, where you know we had the Sony Walkman cassette player. You know, dating myself. You know, just an MP3 players that were kind of flash drives and that really weren't you know very easy to use and just I just think about how he did it one of the greats as far as innovation goes in technology at least and um, I think he, not so good yeah. stuff he's he's one of those people and, and buddy asked a question I was curious about about how how you think about this because Steve is one of those people who would say mm -hmm. you know the, the great creative minds or thinkers they don't understand how they did it but when you look in reverse you see that they connected the dots like they sure. could see how the dots connected definitely but so the the important thing is how do we figure out or how do we test drive connecting the dots up front so we can get to those things and in you as a quiet person Nick <laughs> Do you find that you connect dots in in similar ways as you go through? Definitely, definitely observing and patterns are, are you know key. You know, and it's interesting to hear that those are kind of the top two, uh, and then they relate obviously as well. You know, I mean, all the time, always looking, always listening. That's kind of what I do, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I turn it into something. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> Well, you know, in order to get to great ideas, you have to start with a lot of ideas. Yeah. And, and uh, I think one of the one of the pieces of research I saw said you have to go through the first 200 ideas before you start to get to the really original ideas, because that's just you dumping out all the obvious choices and and you know, kind of default things, but as you work, especially in a team, and then you start to come together with all those different experiences and, and outlooks, that's when you start to get to the really interesting and, and yeah. quirky opportunities. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the, the finding the right ideas and, you know, bringing Nick into the room, things like that. When I first started my career back then, and uh, it was the internet was like two cans and a string. And um, <laughs> when we would ideate, it would be people from all over the organization. It wouldn't be the marketing team or the sales team or anything. It was literally people from all over the organization would be in. And, and I was a software developer in the time. And that's how I started down this road was because I was brought in to do these things. And you, you find the perspectives can be very different and really quite amazing. And probably well over um, a decade or more later, I was down at uh, South by Southwest and Astro Teller was giving a keynote from uh, Google X. And one of the things he said is it stuck with me the whole like for years, which is one sentence, which is you are not your customer. And so like, it's just always been amazing to me to think about ensuring having such diversity of thought, diversity of ideas and backgrounds and like in the room for these concepts. You know, we talk about ALS, you know, the, the, the ice bucket challenge was not a kind of corporate idea that was pushed out. It was something that was recognized that somebody did and was picked up and recognized and promoted. And so it's kind of really interesting to me that like 
part of this is, is just identifying that idea when you have the right people in the room and getting the right people in the room. And as you said, I think you put it very eloquently with connecting the dots, right? You know, <laughs> which makes sense. So, you know, when you, you hear and you get the right conversations going and you can connect those dots and you can see which ones are the ones that make sense that are the ones within your constraints, that are ones that accomplish your goals, the ones that, you know, that when they start to check those boxes and they start to say, oh, this is really interesting. This might go somewhere, you know, maybe a seedling and then you can start to build and, and iterate and generate. And I think that's a really, it's a great framework. Yeah, and, and what I find is that once people learn the process, their brain starts to do it and then it's hard for them to turn it off. And I'll get emails and texts from people going, man, everywhere I go, all I can see is like, see things, patterns. And it's it's like going from uh, the middle of rural America to Times Square in New York City and you just can't turn it off. <laughs> but it, it's just, a, it's a stimulus. And once your brain kind of re-remembers it, it's really a fun thing to go through. Yeah. Well, and this was this was fun for us, Carla. And this next part it may take us a while, but we're going to we're going to hang in there. Carla, where can they find you if they want to learn more about your book and where are some of the places you will be speaking? I'll just we'll sit back for a little while because it's going to take a little while. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the main place is on my website, and it's Carla with a C, CarlaJohnson.co. There's no M at CO like Colorado, the great state I live in. And on there, you'll find information about my book, Rethink Innovation. And you can go to CarlaJohnson.co slash Rethink Book and find all the details. And if you've bought a copy, you can go to that page and download a lot of free bonuses, including a, a PDF of the book. So you can get a hold of it right away and, and some other tools and things in there. Um, I love it when people connect with me on LinkedIn, especially if they tell me where they heard me. And, and I know this will be a fun conversation for people to listen to. And um, on Twitter, I am at Carla Johnson. And where will you be speaking? Do you have any upcoming events? I do. I um, The next few months I have our internal brand events and um, I'll be in the, at the end of September, I'll be at Content Marketing World. Um, I'm doing a, a leadership group in, um, let's see, I'm doing one in New Orleans and one in Boston the first week of October. And then I'll be in Las Vegas for an industry event and then um, just here and there. So if anybody is interested, I'd love to even just, just talk to them about the idea of innovation. And one thing that I encourage people to do is that on the homepage of my website, there's a link to go to an archetype assessment. And there are six different archetypes that I found about how they come up with ideas and how they try to bring them through an organization. And it's the six together make it very successful if you can either have those six archetypes or have people who understand to think like that. So it's a fun thing for a team to go through and, and especially a 501c3 team to see, do you have a tendency to lean more toward one side or the other? And uh, it really helps you understand how your group, your team comes up with ideas and how you try to actually put them into play. That sounds great. Yeah. And and if you, haven't, if you haven't seen Carla speak, it is a, it, it's a real treat. Uh, oh, thank you, Thank yeah, you, she brings a lot of personality and um, wonderful insights. So it's uh, it's uh, it's just a great uh, presentation. And I'll see you in Cleveland. I'll be joining you Yay! there. Yeah, be great. yeah. So um, speaking of where they can find things, Matt, if they went on the internet, where would they find this podcast? 
they would find us at 501c3lookup, <clears throat> excuse me, 501c3lookup.org. Nick's website. Nick's website. And Matt, where, where, where would they find you? I think you're a LinkedIn uh, person as well, aren't you? Oh, I love LinkedIn. So you can always find me on LinkedIn. I love the conversations. I love that it kind of, the groups, you know, distill down to really interesting topics. And I find a lot of really just kind of just neat posts and conversations there. So LinkedIn is my social network of choice. Uh, and then you can find my home base at MatthewBalo.com. And I kind of link out to everything from there. Hey, Nick, speaking of the website, how much do people have to pay to go to the 501c3lookup.org website? The website is free, free to use. We list over 2 million nonprofits. It's uh, all uh, public IRS data that is distilled down so that you can sort and uh, filter and find uh, organizations, lookalike type organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So it's 501c3lookup.org. Um, you can find me at Nick underscore Rufa on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, Nick Rufa. And you can find me, uh, Buddy Scalera, at my website, BuddyScalera.com and in all places at Buddy Scalera. We hope you enjoyed the 501 Companion Podcast and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions, show ideas, or are part of a charitable organization that wants to be on the show, visit the 501c3lookup.org website. You'll find our contact information and a complete list of our previous episodes. And of course, the extensive and free resources of the 501c3lookup.org website. Thank you for joining us on the 501 Companion Podcast. We hope you join us again next week. All righty. We're out. Awesome.